This is an Algoa FM news exclusive. In today's episode of Journey to Justice, I have a very special guest joining me. But before we get to that, I wanted to give you an update on where things are at the moment with the Tirblanche trial. Dylan Cullors, accused number two, is ready to take his plea deal six months after indicating his willingness to do so. And in exchange, he will be sentenced to 18 years in prison. Now, it's important to note that Cullis was facing life, which in South Africa is 25 years. So he's only really getting seven years off and would possibly be eligible for parole after serving a third of his sentence. This is such an important victory for the state as they have secured their first conviction for the murder of Vicky Terblanche. And Cullis will be giving us his version of events where Arnold Terblanche is implicated. So what will this mean for Cullis? Well, he just celebrated his 22nd birthday in custody as a trial-awaiting prisoner. But as soon as he's sentenced, he will become part of the general prison population where different rules will apply and he will also now be known as a convicted murderer. In terms of the trial date, this was supposed to happen already, but I've been reliably informed that the state is not ready and therefore a trial date cannot yet be set down for the matter to move to the High Court. Also, I would like to remind you of the dedicated email address for your tip-offs, journeytojustice at algofm.co.za. That is journey and the number two, justice at algofm.coza. I've received a few emails that were of great interest and importance to this case and I want to encourage you If you know something and want to chat, every single email I received was of interest to this case, so I thank you for that. No detail is ever too small in the bigger scheme of things, and what you know might help bring justice for Vicky Terblanche. Now this brings us to today's episode. My guest is forensic analyst Teresa Kunneke, who was instrumental in the Panayotu murder trial in Kobeja as a result of her evidence in court. Jade Panayotu was abducted and murdered in Kobeja in 2015 and her husband Christopher is currently serving a life sentence in prison for orchestrating her death. Teresa tells us more about how your digital footprint and cell phone and tracker data can seal your fate in a murder trial. Very welcome to the podcast to Teresa Kunneke. Thank you so much for joining me today. We met each other during the Panayotu trial, which, as you know, was a very big story in Kobeja at the time. And you offered your services as an investigative analyst. And it was so interesting to me because basically what you did was you sat and listened to all the testimony in court. And then you would go and look at all the cell phone data, for example, or social media data or tracker data to see how it corresponded with the evidence led in court. Am I correct in explaining it that way? Um, yes, um, Doreen. In short, to explain to you uh, what it is that evidence or investigative analysts do, is we work in conjunction with the team, that's the investigating officer and the prosecutor. We use um, structured data, cell phone data, banking data, anything that you can get on paper that is structured data that can be obtained in terms of Section 205 of the Criminal Procedure Act. And we interpret that in context of an investigation to support 
as many as possible of the existing evidence. Say, for instance, there's a witness that says that he saw a person at a certain time of night. And then one would go to that location where that person has been reported to have been seen. And you would do a, a GPS pin drop, and then you will transfer that onto a map and then find the closest tower to that. And then um, go and look on that person's data if you can find that phone in close proximity to that tower, thereby then supporting the witness that said that he saw a person at a specific place or in vicinity of a specific place. I remember during the Panayota trial you had the pleasure or the displeasure of having to face Peter Doberman who also happens to be uh, the legal representative of Arnold Blanche. Tell me what it was like to be questioned by someone like him. Well, Mr. Doberman, as many of the defense, or all the defense counsel around the country, he has an obligation um, to make sure that his client gets a fair trial. So his work is to test the evidence put before court by the state. So it's not that he wants to discredit. He has to test the evidence. So if there's any reasonable possibility that the evidence does not support the state's case, he has to find it. People have different ways of cross-examining, and you find some have a gentleman-like court manner and some don't. But um, all of that is to, to find the truth and to put the truth before court. But what you do to me is almost very like science. You, you can't, there's not a lot of room to argue with what you present in court. One of the things that Doberman kind of hammered on was that you can't say for certain from which tower a phone picked up a signal. And I wanted to ask you about that because now in particular with load shedding, I want to know if load shedding has any impact on this data in terms of the towers it connects with and in terms of delayed WhatsApp messages for example, that can maybe um, be detrimental to a timeline for the state. The tower data doesn't stand on its own legs. Let's look at, at the Jade Panayoti scenario. We have the vehicle or the cell phone um, activating in close proximity to where the crime is said to have taken place. But before that, you have the accused um, handsick moving from from their homes or wherever to that location and in communication with each other. So you have the cell phones being there. Prior to that, you have them in communication. And after that, you find the phones and the car going to the place where her body was found. Now, all of that needs to be considered as a whole. You can't just say, um, you know, build your whole case around one tower activation and say the person was there. You cannot do that. You have to look at the whole thing all together. Was there communication? Was there WhatsApp sent? What happened before and after? If there's load shedding and the towers are powered by battery, um, it's, it's as usual. It's communication. The tower will reflect on the data. But say, for instance, the tower was not equipped with a backup battery. That means that that tower could not have received the signal and load shedding, um, going as far and wide as it does, you don't have um, the instance where a neighbouring tower will take over that um, that communication. And um, whereas you know, when you have tower saturation, so in the middle of town where you've got a lot of people using their phones, so it's five o'clock in the afternoon when they go home, 
and that tower is saturated, that tower might hand over to an, a neighboring tower. Now with load shedding, you can't have that because all the towers will be off or the next tower next to it that has a battery might pick it up. If both towers don't have battery backup, there'll be no communication. So you'll have nothing to go on. But if one of them has, um, then it will go to the next uh, neighboring tower and you can use that in conjunction with other supporting evidence. Criminals, they think they're so smart. I I sometimes wonder what they think they know better because um, like the Terblanche case, the state says that multiple SIM cards were used in the same device. Um, How does that uh, make things interesting to kind of link different SIM cards to the same device and the same communication taking place between accused persons. I have to tell you that I don't follow the case, so I'm not up to speed with what's going on in that case. But um, in all the other cases that I'm dealing with, um, you have, uh, you see it quite often where people um, do SIM swapping so that you have one handset with multiple SIM cards. The problem is it's still the same handset. So you can still link the calls to the handset, although the SIM cards change. Definitely an attempt to evade the evidence of the investigation um, or to mislead the investigation. Let me me explain to you my very, very first case um, that I did was way back in 2007. And in 2007, um, no prosecutor in this country wanted to touch cell phone evidence, let alone lead it in court. We had an instance where over a couple of years there was a a modus operandi of people being killed in the same fashion um, on the same piece of road. Um, And the modus operandi also indicated that every time a person was killed, the cell phone was taken, and um, a day or so after that, another SIM card would be placed in that phone. Um, And it happened like 20, I think it was 22 times. So we had 22 different murders over a long period, I think it was four or five years. And when we looked at the the phone calls that were made from these SIM cards that were placed in those handsets after the murders, we found that those SIM cards made calls to the same people. And that was how um, we identified who um, the perpetrators there was. And that evidence wasn't used, but that went a very long way in the methodology. Now, what you do also uh, when you assist the state is you assist them in the direction of the investigation. So uh, this makes me think that, that, that you as an evidence analyst should be involved in a case almost immediately. And I get the idea that that is not always the case. And during, um there is very few, literally a handful of experienced evidence analysts in this country. That an analyst should be involved in the investigation as soon as possible for the simple reason um, the investigating officer is led by, by what witnesses say. So a witness would say that he saw a person and he would go and follow that up. And then that next witness would say that um, he spoke to someone and he'd follow that up. But he can only go on what the case where the evidence leads him. But when you look at the data, you'll see that A phoned B, but he also phoned C. And B phoned A, but he also phoned C. But nobody in the docket speaks about C. So you can, as an analyst, then advise the investigation team, being the prosecutor and the investigating officer, 
Listen, there's another person here that um, has communications with our role players in this period of time, and that that helps with the direction of the investigation. Now, I must say what you do, I find extremely interesting because myself as a journalist and doing this podcast, uh, I've done a little bit of investigation work myself. And um, I, I know I asked you before we agreed to the podcast, what can I go study? How can I do this? How can I get involved in doing what you do? And you said to me, you can't. It's, it's a brand new field. It's not recognized as a field in South Africa as such. Is it because um, technology is going at such an incredible fast pace? And in overseas in America, um, there's a couple of associations for um, intelligence and investigative analysts. For you to do that, you'll have to start off by doing the legwork. And you can only do the legwork when you're in the police because how else are you going to get access to a docket, to statements, to um, third-party privileged information? You can only do that if you are mandated to do that by the police or the NPA or by a a, a lawyer um, who is seeking your services for his client. That is the only way you can get access to it. By doing training, you have to do the legwork. And that comes from experience in investigation and police work. With that first case that I told you about, that that people saw that there's merits in what what we've discovered here. And that led to the the next biggest case, and that was the case at M26 case, that I started working on in 2008. And that was a case where um, 26 accused were um, arrested on 286 charges of ranging from murder, armed robbery, cash and transit. That case became the international benchmark on um, organized crime and for cell phone evidence. And it became a decided case in this country because it was the first time in this country's history that cell phone evidence was was presented and accepted to the extent that it um, assisted to the uh, in the conviction of 25 robbers and also proved that one of the accused um, his version was um, was true and he was acquitted of all charges. That's very interesting because what you do is not only to to get the bad guys, but it actually exonerated someone as well, which which again shows how powerful this tool is. And it's subjective, you know, Doreen, uh, whether I work for um, the state, the defense, my evidence will be the same. I had a case, a rape case, DNA and everything proves that the, the rape happened. But the accused version was that this woman basically stalked him. And um, it led to a point where, yes, they went out, and but he said it was consensual sex. By analyzing the cell phone data, I could prove that he never phoned her. She phoned him close to 90 times, and she always went to his place of residence. Wow. So it, it, it really goes both ways. You can't manipulate it. Yeah. And if you do, you, it's unethical to, to manipulate. We live in such a violent country, and I think... We all know someone who's who knows someone who's been murdered. But if you're in a situation like that, what is the advice you can give to people? Because your your knee jerk reaction, like your bank card, you cancel your bank card, you blacklist your phone. Uh, does that not make your job then a little bit more complicated if people do that so quickly? 
It definitely does. In a case like that, when the cell phone is blocked and the perpetrator who took the phone cannot put his SIM card in and use it, um, because that's effectively what happens if you if you blacklist the phone. No cell phone tower will recognize that phone and, and allow it to communicate. So then what they do, they clone it with the legitimate phone uh, phones um, um, details. And then that phone is lost for investigation forever and a day. Sure. And I mean, these days people walk around with phones that are 20,000 rands worth. So you would want to blacklist it and you would want to get your money back with insurance. But that's really, really good advice to to rather not do that and rather let go of the phone and assist in getting the perpetrators to book. Yes. If, it, if you have a case where your vehicle, um, the window is smashed and your iPhone is stolen, um, and you just want to claim from your insurance, fair enough, go ahead and do that. Mm. But where, where you have a more serious crime, I would really appeal to um, to the public um, to consider not to do that. You know, you lose the phone, you're not going to get the phone back anyway. You might get um, the money back from the insurance, but mm. it's not going to bring back the person that's gone, and it's certainly going to hamper the investigation. Teresa, since the last time, uh, we met each other, that was 2016. You've now gone private. If there are any prosecutors listening or any lawyers <laughs> or any people who feel that you could assist in their defense, uh, tell me a little bit about your private practice now and how people can get hold of you. Doing it's quite expensive. Let me be honest with you, it's quite expensive because it's very labor-intensive. Um, you know, sometimes you know, the affidavits that I work on these days are three and four hundred pages, sure. and sometimes you spend a whole day um, analysing and going through through data, um, only to yield like three or four lines of evidence in your statement. So it's it's really backbreaking and and labour intensive work. You know, people don't understand in this day and age. You know, you're supposed to just press a button and it and it, it, it spits it out, but it doesn't. You have to. That the deductive reasoning capacity of the analyst really needs to work. You have to look at everything and then decide what's going to be the best course of action on every sentence you put in that affidavit. We are in Pretoria. Um, the business's name is Analytics. It's registered as Clinica Analytics. We don't advertise. Um, we do word of mouth um, referencing. Um, at the moment, it's only the two of us. It's my husband and I. Um, my husband is an accountant with an um, MBL degree, uh, which helps a lot with financial um, investigations and analyses. And we have also um, established the Association for Investigative or for Evidence Analysts South Africa. I'm very excited about the prospects of that. We've got a handful of analysts that have proven themselves in court um, and we have decided to rather invest in those guys and bring them up to an excellent standard so that once um, an analyst is associated with the evidence of the association, um, you know that you get a certain standard of work. Every person that has done an online course in analysis now calls himself an analyst. So, and unfortunately, it's people that... that um, they don't have a clue what they're doing when it comes to evidence investigation and uh, they, and they should not be facing Peter Doberman at all. <laughs> no, it will unfortunately give all of the bad names. <laughs> but for those guys that that really try and that really want to learn and advance their careers, 
um, we have established the association. What you're doing is really incredible and, and hopefully, and it's obviously the plan to, to have this as the norm going forward um, in court cases, that having an evidence analyst must just be part of the package from the get-go. That would be so wonderful. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. Thank you so much for giving me some of your time. I really do appreciate it. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much. That, that was an Algoa FM News exclusive.